Welcome to another episode of Focused on Christ, where we are passionate about exalting Christ and equipping the church. I'm Mike Crump here with Pastor Nathan Smith, and on this week's episode, we are going to wade into a discussion about a fairly difficult passage of Scripture. It's not necessarily difficult because of its complexity, but because of its content. I'm speaking about Joshua and the conquest of Canaan which is a historical description of God's people systematically coming into the land God promised and destroying cities and peoples inside of that area. So a lot to cover, but Nathan, let's start with setting the stage for the conquest. Where is Canaan? Who lives there? What's happening in that area of the world at this time? The area of Canaan is where roughly modern-day Israel, Palestine, and even parts of Jordan are today roughly from the connecting point between Africa, the continent, mm-hmm. into the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and then north up to Euphrates and Tigris. So okay. that, that strip of land that hugs the coast of the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful place. Yeah. It has been said that the land of Israel, or the land uh, that we find there in modern-day Israel, ancient Canaan, yeah. uh, contains every biome mm. in the world, meaning you have snow, you have desert. You have temperate pine forests, you have jungle, you have tropics, you have Mediterranean climate. That's awesome. And you have oranges and uh, fertile territory for growing wheat and everything Mm. in between. That little spit of land controls the crossroads of three continents, the Asian continent, the African continent, and really the European continent. Wow. So not only did it sit at the crossroads, it controlled trade, it was the most, and frankly, even if you look today, is the most valuable real estate in the world. Mm. If you go to Israel today, you'll see a land ravaged by millennia of war. So it doesn't look quite like the promised land as you would imagine (laughs) it to be, but back then we're talking about this really is the land overflowing with milk and honey. Nice. So who who is living there at this time? We have, it's not just one nation that's living there. You have multiple little kingdoms set up in this area? I mean, is that how it's running? We think historically that the Garden of Eden would have been not too far from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, Of course, the landscape was changed drastically over the fl- after the flood. Yeah. So we can't pinpoint and should not pinpoint an exact location. So the earliest peoples in humanity began in this region. If you go to Jericho today, tell Jericho, mm. you can see settlements that are some of the oldest settlements ever discovered. Yeah. And we're talking millennia old. Who is there? So you're talking about the ancestors of the earliest settlers of the human race. But the the landscape of Canaan at this time was not a country. Mm. It wasn't an empire. They were a collection of city-states. Now, a city-state, if you don't remember history and geography of my <laughs> Yeah, school, please help me. <laughs> a city-state is a city mm-hmm. that controls the land immediately around it. Okay. Um, maybe a city-state might incorporate several other cities at the same time, but it's still a state controlled by a single city. Okay. The closest thing we might have today is maybe Washington, D.C., where you have – it's not exactly <laughs> accurate. But Washington, D.C., where it's a city that yeah. controls a region around it, or maybe uh, like Montenegro. Montenegro, really a country that is controlled by a single city. Okay. Uh, But that is what a city-state is. So you have all these city-states that war against each other, that live um, at these different crossroads of trade routes. So Jericho would be one of them, right? Jericho was a key strategic city-state. Jerusalem was, Hatzor in the north, Mm -hmm. and several others. Okay. So that's kind of the area that they're heading into. what about the people of Israel? What's going on with them at this time? Who's leading them now, and what's going on? 
So we come into uh, the book of Joshua, which is named after the great general who took command after Moses. Mm -hmm. Now Moses went up into Sinai, and we actually read in the first five books that Joshua, the Torah, uh, that Joshua uh, accompanied Mm -hmm. uh, Moses up into Sinai. So he saw a lot of the same things that Moses did. He heard and saw God do wondrous things. Moses, because of his disobedience, was not allowed into the promised land. He, God took him at Mount Nebo. Now Joshua is going to cross the Jordan and take the people into the Canaan. Mm. An archaeological historical point yeah. that shows the historicity and the accuracy of the Bible mm-hmm. and that we know archaeologically and historically this land was governed by city-states mm. like we were just talking about. Yeah. And when you read through the book of Joshua, what do we see? Joshua going from city-state to city-state to city-state. There's actually Hatzor in the north. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite places to take people in Israel because Hatzor, we know historically, it's one of the most excavated sites in the Middle East. Yeah, We know it was a city-state, and right around the time period of when Joshua would have been there, there is actually burn marks from where this city was burned. And if you read in Joshua 11, Hatzor was one of only two cities that Joshua burned. I do remember in Israel when we went a few That's years right, back. That's right, you were there. I remember that, and it was just kind of struck by just here we are standing in this place. And I remember you even had some of the ash on your on your fingers and stuff just because we you can see it right there. And uh, how, how amazing that uh, we can see, stand, and understand, hey, this is reality. This is true history. And if we have someone who's struggling with the historicity and the accuracy of God's word, this is just another way in which we see the evidence point to that the Bible knows the world in which it was writing. Yeah. So there was a promise given Joshua, and uh, this is one that uh, many times we we read, uh, Joshua 1. Uh, verses 3 through 5, I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and so on. And he lists all the places. Um, he says, no one will be able to stand against you all of your days. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, so we have this beautiful promise given to Joshua. Um, but one of the hard realities of that promise is it means that there will be people destroyed in this process. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the tension is for many people when they read this section of Scripture, is that our God has provided and done so much for Israel. He's shown himself to be loving and kind and gracious. But here, God is commanding the wiping out of these city-states. And why is it so hard for us? when we come across those texts, when we read those things? Well, we want to be honest with ourselves that what this smacks of is genocide. Mm. And if we look at recent history, genocide is not far afield from what we've seen in recent history. Yeah. If you look at World War II with the Holocaust, genocide. If you look at what's going on in the Congo, genocide. The Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda and Burundi, genocide. The Uyghurs and what has been the oppression um, in China, again, aspects of genocide. So it is naturally repulsive to our senses. And what we're reading seems like the indiscriminate killing of both men and women and children. And this is extremely difficult for us to swallow. And might I add, Mike, it should be. This is not easy. We're talking about death and destruction. 
God commanded them to go in and take the land and to wipe out the inhabitants. Mm-hmm. That is the command. Yeah. But there's also more to it. So, and, and to that, I, I think as we approach these texts, and, and there are a few things that came to mind when I started asking this question. Why is it so hard for us with these things? Um, I think first and foremost, we are not God. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we lack understanding. Uh, we're not omniscient. We don't know the hearts of the people. We don't know. And, and we're also separated by history. Um, it is so foreign to us, especially here in modern-day America, to consider just such the war and the battles, and that was a constant reality for the people of that day and age as well. Um, and then there's just the reality of the grieving of life and, and like you said, women and children, that perceived innocence of women and children, that is hard for us to wrap our minds around why God would even allow that, let alone to command it to be done. And and that is the reality. God does indeed command that that happen in uh, Deuteronomy 7.2. When the Lord gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy. And so with that kind of brings up our key question, how do we rightly understand the conquest of Canaan? Because I don't, like like you were saying, I don't think it's wrong for us to grieve this reality, mm-hmm. but we still have to approach it rightly. Otherwise, it can lead to bitterness towards the Lord and even arrogance over the Lord. So this needs to be painted carefully and uh, from several different angles. Okay. The first one is to look at the grand sweep of history itself. And here's what I mean by that. God created, and there is going to be a day in the future where God destroys Mm. all that is not of him, all who rebel against him. It doesn't matter your gender. It does not matter your age. If you are not in Christ, there is a day of destruction Mm. that is coming. And it is a day of destruction where at that point, mercy will not be shown. Now, God has withheld that destruction for a period of time out of what? Out of mercy and out of grace. But there is a time limit to God's mercy and love towards those who reject him. It's very important to understand this. Yeah. If you are in Christ, God's love and mercy is eternal. If you have trusted in faith in Christ, you are saved. God's love and mercy are eternal. Mm. If you are not in Christ, the space of his love and mercy is the span of your life, whatever that is. Yeah. Might be 80 years, might be 90 years. If you reject Christ, you do not believe in him at the end of that span of life. Um, his mercy and love now ends and his wrath remains on you mm. because he's a just and holy God. Yeah. So we see that grand sweep, okay? Now, let's let's import this onto the situation at Canaan. What has been going on historically up to this point? What has Canaan had? Canaan has had the living presence of God through Abraham and the patriarchs who've now been with them mm. three generations. Yeah. Not only Abraham and the patriarchs, Melchizedek has been there. Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, which would have been the precursor to modern-day Jerusalem. Uh, There are different voices for Yahweh that have been proclaiming mercy and love and Yahweh and who he is. Mm. 
Canaan serves as a picture of there is grace and mercy that is offered. Yeah. But if it is rejected, there is a time of judgment that is coming. And so that is, okay, we, we started really grand. Yep. We're bringing it down to Canaan, seeing that theological narrative arc. Now here come the Israelites and the instruction to destroy everybody. And the first city they come to, Rahab. Mm. Now, what is this? What is going on here? Uh, when she said, hey, I believe and fear this God. What did God do? Sorry, Rahab, you're dead no matter what. What did he show? Mercy, grace, grace, and love. And Rahab comes into the nation of Israel, marries a prince of Israel, and becomes the ancestor to King David, who's ultimately the ancestor to Jesus Christ himself. So you know I get excited as we talk about these connection points. But what do we see? God in his grace, even as Israel is going in, is showing mercy and still inviting people in. Yeah even at the very threshold of justice. Now, people say, why are we destroying the Canaanites? They have so rejected God and embraced evil that these are some of the most evil people on the face of the planet up Mm. to this point. We know historically, I won't get into all the details for the sake of our listeners, but they had these idols where they would heat the idol. There was was a cavity in the center of the idol Mm. um, where you could place your child. They would heat this idol until it was burning hot. And then as a sacrifice to this false god, people would go and lay their children as their children were burned alive. Mm. And then they would have all these instruments and noises in order to drown out the screams of these children that are being sacrificed and burned alive. These are the Canaanites. And in this context, God has basically said, I have shown you grace. Mm. I've shown you mercy. And I'm still drawing people like Rahab. But the time of my grace and mercy has come to an end. Yeah. Justice is now coming. Justice for all. And that is what will one day happen as well at the end of time. Yeah. So we're seeing a microcosm. We're seeing God's grace and mercy and patience beforehand. And we still see him drawing people despite the fact that the time of justice has arrived. I think the long-suffering over Canaan must be highlighted, as you were, you were mentioning. Even in Genesis 20, God speaking to Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. We see that there is a time God has established. It is, it's going to be that punishment, wrath is going to come, but in the meantime, I am waiting. I am being merciful. And the voices, as you mentioned, the voices that were there declaring the truth, um, a lot of time, we, I, maybe we dismiss that as, as being relevant, but it is so true that that is a means by which people can repent, turn to God, and he will by no means cast them out. He will welcome them in with great joy, and uh, just like he did with Rahab. And, and we also need to know that there's no accidental condemnation of innocence with God. Yeah. God is just, God is holy, God is good. There is no accidental condemnation of the innocent. Uh, there is always rightful justice, and there are there's no such thing. We understand this in the New Testament. Those who said, "I would I would have chosen God yeah. if you'd only given me the opportunity." No, the scriptural record says they were given opportunity, and yet they actively rejected Him. Yeah. Now we say that verse that you just brought out: mm-hmm. "The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure." It shows that God is holding off. Mm tolerating, bearing with these constant assaults against his holiness and even injustice against other people. 
so that there's an opportunity for grace, but he's also there's a warning. There's mm-hmm. gonna be a there's gonna be a reckoning. Yeah. And that will come. And in this case, Canaan serves as a picture of a greater redemptive arc. Mm. You know, it, it just dawned on me, you know, we, we recently had the discussion about Balaam mm-hmm. and how God utilized him to be able to proclaim this message about his people and, the, you know, what, what he is doing for them and on their behalf. And here we just have one more. God is even using evil voices like Balaam to display his glory mm-hmm. so that people will respond rightly to it. Um, and yet there is just rejection and turning from him, which we see today, which Christ even promised would happen for narrow is the gate and wide is the gate to destruction. And so these are all realities. But I always, in this discussion, I always end up back at the cross mm-hmm. because a lot of times we do, we may question God's love as we see these things happen, but the bottom line is he sacrificed his own son so that we may have life and eternal life and understand and experience joy forevermore. And if a, if our God is willing and able and desires to do that out of an abundant love, I, I, I got to trust him for these other things that are hard. And these hard things are aspects of grace because mm-hmm. they are picturing certain things that will happen if we reject God. They are images, they are examples for later generations. And those are things that we must understand that God is always trying to communicate through so many different means, his gospel and his heart Mm -hmm. to redeem people. Now, some people will say, and I've heard this, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important, especially in our culture today. They would say, this is a genocide. Oh, and by the way, God said, don't intermarry with any of me there. See, this is racism. Mm. This has nothing to do with that because actually the Israelites did intermarry with those who proclaimed Yahweh. Yeah. Rahab is an example. Esther is another example. God delights in bringing in the nations. This is not an ethnic issue. Mm-hmm. The, the prohibitions on intermarriage were to protect them from these other people bringing their false gods into Israel. Yeah. So this is not genocide. This is not racism or not intermarrying with different that, that's not that's not the point at all here yeah it's an image of greater redemptive truths mm. even in hebrews chapter 4 canaan is used as a foil that canaan is an example of heaven it's mm. the final resting place of the saint just as the israelites were looking for that resting place in canaan we look forward to a better Canaan. Mm. And just as Canaan had a place where there was a justice, where, where sin would be taken care of and the evil wiped out, yeah. that's an image. It also points towards a greater image and a warning. Mm. There is a day coming when God will, across the board, extinguish evil. Mm. So hide within the context of the people of God and you will be safe like Rahab did or like Esther did. And that coming into the people of God only happens through, as you said, the cross. Mm. We enter into the community of the people of God by virtue of what Christ did on the cross, and he brings us to himself. Amen. Ultimately, that that picture of Joshua leading the people into the promised land. I mean, the picture of Jesus leading us into that rest. And I I do think of, uh, even in Revelation and and the heaven that's declared and that there is no evil 
in this place. It is cast out and nothing can enter in that is evil. Um, the true purging of that land and setting up of what is righteous. The people of Israel did not do that when they came through. They did not clear out all the Canaanites. They did not clean out all the city-states. And they ended up paying for it because they allowed them to lead them into unrighteousness and uh, causing great heartache and pain. Consequences to disobeying God. Yeah. And that can cause heartache for generations. Amen. Well, we pray that this has been a helpful discussion. Uh, For those who are listening, we pray that this would help you understand the love of God even in the midst of the difficulty of these texts. Next week, we are going to wrap up the book of Joshua and move into the book of Judges, where we're going to consider the purpose of the judges and the role they played in Israel. Our prayer here on Focused on Christ is that you would grow in greater love and understanding towards Jesus. If this has been the case for you, please take a moment, give us a five-star rating, share it with a friend, and we pray that you are encouraged and that others are as well. Again, for more information, visit us online at focusedonchrist.com. Thank you.